This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9 is 7.35. I'm Julian and uh, together with me is Joyce and Sherrison. Thanks for joining us. On the morning run, uh, earlier on before the break, we were talking about the formation of the Economic Action Council. Uh, Previously, we had the National Economic uh, Action Council, which was something that was formed uh, 20 years ago to uh, brace for the financial crisis at that point in time. Uh, But this time round uh, is uh, New Malaysia. So we have something different here. Uh, What are some of the responses uh, to this formation? Yeah, so the Suwaram advisor, Dato Kwa Kiasong, um, and uh, the, uh, they've asked about the council to review two things, which is uh, the third, whether or not con- the controversial pet projects are going to be reviewed. For example, the third national car and the privatization of Kazana and uh, the, uh, the GLCs. Yeah, well, we also have some academics that have uh, brought have spoken about this. I think uh, weighed in, uh, Dr. Shazali Abu Mansor, he is the economics and business professor at U- University of Malaysia, Sarawak, said that this new council is a is better represented compared to the Council of Imminent Persons. Remember that? And, you know, it has less possibility of going wrong. But I agree with regards to it has a better representation because it's a good mix of uh, corporate people as well as from uh, people from the government. I think when you say something like less possibility of going wrong, it doesn't uh, inspire a lot of confidence. (laughs) You know, uh, but uh, I, I think what uh, Doctor Kwa was uh, saying is is also very relevant uh, because to be absolutely critical about this, you know, uh, when we are in the new Malaysia era, mm. we have to um, review all the things and ask whether uh, all these projects, like the third national car and uh, the privatization of Kazana and GLCs, whether they are good for the nation. Okay, uh, let's look. Let's turn our attention into some of the um, international news that we are seeing today. Uh, last week was Chinese New Year, a week that saw markets uh, in China shut for the entire week as uh, people enjoyed uh, their holidays over there in China. However, according to the Ministry of Commerce, people in China spent $149 billion over the week-long holiday. This was 8.5% higher uh, compared to last year, but this was the slowest increase since 2011. Yeah, and there's an apparent uh, pullback in spending, which has hit companies such as Apple, Swatch, and luxury car makers like Mercedes-Benz. Um, also, with regards to Apple and uh, its shipment uh, to China, it took a bit of a dive, so it looks like Apple estimates uh, about 20% fall in Chinese smartphone shipment in the final quarter of 2018, and could have more to do. This could have more to do with Huawei and Apple's high price and on top of that smartphone labels from Apple to Samsung Electronics are contending with uh, plateauing the global market after years of break, uh, breakneck growth. Yeah, and according to data from the Ministry of Commerce, I think spending at domestic tourist venue uh, that grew 8% but slower than the 12.6% rise last year. Uh, tourists chose Hong Kong, Thailand and Macau as their top overseas destination and uh, China mainland visitors to Macau reached 900,000 during the Chinese New Year holidays. That's an increase of 26% double from last year. I think investors uh, are very funny people because when they look at numbers, uh, they're always looking at the marginal number, right? So this year, 8.5% growth in spending. Hey, that's a good number, 8.5% growth. But Mm. this is actually a big fall uh, from previous years because if you look at 2011, that number was uh, 20%, right? Around about 20%. And it has been gradually falling Mm. and declining over the last uh, seven or eight years. So uh, to, to investors, this eight and a half percent 
is an alarming number. The other number that was uh, pretty much alarming to investors as well uh, is the Chinese, Chinese GDP growth because in the fourth quarter of 2018, it slowed down to 6.4% from its uh, stratospheric levels of the previous year and uh, tipped to slow to uh, go even further down to 6% in the quarter one this year. Uh, that's what the analysts are saying. But this is still 6% growth for what is the second largest economy in the world, right? Uh, the US has there about 20 trillion in GDP. Um, mm. China is about 10 to 12 trillion. It's not easy to move a 12 trillion economy. Mm. So uh, six, six, even 6% feels quite commendable. I know. So maybe do you think it's because of the base? You know, if they say, oh, it's not, it's not growing fast enough as compared to X and X years ago, but X and X years ago, that could have been a low base. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. All right. 740. Uh, we have the story on Indonesia, which is looking to leverage on the e economic potential of the halal industry. Indonesia, uh, according to the Halal Product Guarantee Agency, is uh, going to make halal labeling for consumer products and services mandatory this year. Yeah, under the new rules, the government will assume greater control of the certifying process uh, through the Halal Product Guarantee Agency, also known as BPJPH. Uh, previously, certifi certification was carried out mainly by the country's Islamic Cleric Council, and now under the Halal Certificate uh, certification overhaul, the BPJPH will be the main manager of halal certification in partnership uh, with the Clary Council. Okay, so the halal industry is worth 1.7 trillion ringgit in Indonesia. That's a very big number. And uh, this morning, we have uh, to comment on this Bharat Joshi, Investment Director in Indonesia at Abedin Asset Management. Thanks for joining us, Bharat. What do you make of this mandatory halal labeling rule? I, I think it's actually um, quite positive. Um, this labeling law, well, rule is, is nothing new. It's been, well, it was actually passed in 2014. So that makes it mandatory for any uh, producer of food, uh, cosmetics, shampoo, etc., um, having the halal certificate. And I guess given the population that close to 98% are Muslims, uh, this is just one landmark um, to have that halal certified. Well, uh, will this in any way boost the country's economic growth? Uh, President Joko Widodo has always aimed for a 7% boost annually, but it's still hovering at uh, 5%. I, I think in terms of contribution, um, it's, it's, you know, I have numbers that's being um, thrown around. It's about $2.2 billion in terms of net revenues to the government's uh, pockets. But we have to look at this. It does raise the cost of producing because if you're going to add a halal certificate along the value chain, um, you know, it's just going to add costs. Um, but I guess, you know, I think the country is not just looking beyond Indonesia. I mean, just Indonesia alone, but across uh, Indonesia, and, and given that we are the largest, uh, well, one of the largest uh, Islamic populated countries in the world, you know, we could actually easily sell our products to the Middle East um, and the rest of Asia. So I think it's definitely an opportunity for companies to step up. Well, the global halal economy has tripled to 6.4 trillion US dollars in six years. And uh, with Indonesia banking on this wave of halal lifestyle by implementing this rule, will there be a trickle-down effect on the Islamic finance industry in the country? Um, 
I think, you know, it's a good start. It's still very early days. Um, getting, you know, people to consume, you know, halal products is a lot easier to digest than halal financial instruments. Um, I think, it, you know, awareness in terms of financials are still not very clear. Uh, it's still very early days. But I guess, you know, when you rubber stamp something that's halal on the products, it's easier to digest. Um, I think people will gradually migrate into financial uh, instruments um, that are Sharia compliant, you know, and the next step is definitely a gradual process. And, and I see this across um, the regulatory environment where they're encouraging uh, firms like ourselves to launch uh, Sharia products um, that were started about three years ago. And Barat, on Islamic finance, the word is that uh, it's been slow to take a foothold in Indonesia. Why has the take-up rate been so slow? I think, you know, traditionally, um, the, you know, there hasn't been a lot of incentives um, that were given to financial institutions. Um, and, and people were generally, well, Indonesia is one of the most liberal countries in the world also. So it's, you know, aside from just being uh, flagging the Islamic, um, you know, population, it's generally quite liberal. Um, so, you know, there's not much enforcement to, to actually to push people to, you know, bank on financial instruments. But I guess the government is slowly waking up. You know, Singapore has slowly overtaken, um, well, Malaysia, Indonesia, gradually. Um, and, and, and why we not stepping up on the plate. So I think it's a bit of a, uh, an awakening, um, to say the least. And I guess now you will see a lot more news uh, from the regulatory and also the government pushing or encouraging people to invest um, more Sharia. Thank you. That was Bharat Joshi, Investment Director at Aberdeen Asset Management in Indonesia. And coming up next, we'll talk about the IPI. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.